let's, let's begin with prayer and then we'll go on with this passage. Father, I pray, please help us, Lord. Help us to do your will. Oh God, please animate us by your spirit. Lead us. Uh, dear God, a studio, it is often difficult to teach, but oh God, overcome this by your power and um, instruct your men. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read verses one and two. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Now, here's what the first thing I want you to see. God uses men to propagate the truth and women. God uses men and women, human beings, uh, to propagate the truth. We need to understand the devil does the same thing. You know, we don't see devils or demons fulfilling, you know, filling pulpits every Sunday or, uh, you know, directing certain TV shows or cable shows. We see men being used. Now, it says first here that these men are hypocritical liars who have been seared in their own conscience. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone who teaches error is like this, okay? There are, there is error at times that's due to simply ignorance. Error can be due to the fact that the man himself is, is unconverted and yet thinks he's doing the right thing. Yet in all these things, in all these things, the devil is working. Now, it says they are hypocritical liars who have been seared in their own conscience. They are turned over so that they no longer have even the natural use of conscience or reason. Now, there are teachers, and some of them I could almost identify by name, TV preachers in America, that you begin to see something. First of all, there's wayward doctrine. Then there's a kind of hysteria that seems to take them over. A, a unique kind of hysterical emotionalism where they can almost not speak calmly. Then there, there comes the stage where when you see some of these teachers and you look them in the eye, you're looking at whatever's looking back at you is more demon than it is human. And, uh, and so I want you to see that there are different stages, but I want you to also see that not everyone who's in a pulpit that may teach something erroneous, that it's always the result of a person with no conscience. It can be the result of a person who has not been properly instructed. We see this even in the case of, the, of, of Apollos, who was eloquent, who defended Christ, Yet Aquila and Priscilla, you know, showed him more clearly the way of faith. And so we need to be very, very careful before we apply this kind of terminology to another human being. Um, one of the things, though, that I will say, and, and you need to hold on to this, is that Jeremiah 31 provides us with um, a promise of the new covenant. It is the promise of the new covenant. And it says they shall all be taught of God. Uh, from the greatest to the least, they shall be taught of God. And so one of the things that I want you to know is. Especially as I have worked with pastors who had no education, who were converted in the jungle, all they had was a New Testament. There's something unique that I discovered about them. First of all, in many cases, they possessed a great wisdom in the scriptures that they did have. In many cases, their theology was very, very um, primitive or simple. But what they did believe, the limited knowledge that they did possess was true, was true. A very simple gospel, but oftentimes a gospel 
much more powerful than what some of us would preach because of the circumstances and their dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And so I want us to always be very, very careful. There are men who need to be fought with every fiber of your body, with every every cell of your mind. They need to be fought. They're deadly to the people of God. But then there are others that need to be worked with patiently and instructed. Now, in Jude chapter one, of course, there's only one chapter, verse 12 and 13. We have a description of the kind of false teachers that Paul's talking about. He said, these are men without fear. They have no fear of God. They do not fear God. Oh, I have heard some of these preachers get up and give the most extraordinary explanation of them traveling to heaven and everything they saw and their descriptions of Jesus and everything. It's like, do you, sir, have no fear? Are you so deluded and so seared in your conscience that you can make up these abominations, these abominable stories of Jesus and heaven and everything else that are ludicrous, far fetching, that go beyond the scriptures at every point and contradict the scriptures at every point? How can they do that? They have no fear of God. Some of these men, I believe, must be atheists. And are just charlatans. It says without fear, caring for themselves. Now, even though this is a characteristic of all false teachers, it's something that we also need to be afraid of. I'll get back to that in a moment, but they care for themselves. They're all about themselves. They're about their own promotion and usually about their own wealth. Their desire to be at the center of everything. Their desire to be the one that everyone looks to and applauds, the hero in the story. If you ever seek to be a hero in this gospel story, you're in trouble. There's only one hero, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The rest of us are just failures who needed to be saved. And still need to be saved. They care for themselves. Now. Before we go on, let's apply this a bit to us. Sometimes you get so tired. Sometimes you you give so much. And you just get fed up. Especially when you do things and are accused of doing the absolute opposite. You just get fed up. And you start thinking, it's time to think about me. Or it's time to think about my family. I'm sick and tired of this. I would imagine that that Moses of all men must have experienced this. Samuel also as a leader in Israel. He must have experienced this. But this is your calling. This is your calling not to think of yourself. But to think of God's people and God's cause. But these men, they care only for themselves. They are clouds without water. I was raised on, we raised cattle and and horses and uh, my dad was often fond of saying it would be so cloudy and look like it was just gonna be a burst of rain which we needed so much for the fields. And he would say things like, you know, we got five inches of thunder and lightning and a quarter inch of rain. It looked like it was gonna produce a downpour and provide water for all the animals and for all the grasses and the hay and everything else and the beans and the corn. But in the end, it was all just show. Another thing we call it is smoke and mirrors. They boast of all kinds of things, but they give no water, they give no water. What they do is, is what we see in, in the book of Psalms or in the, in the book of Isaiah also. They, they're not content. They, they have no substance to give and therefore they just, they, they make false fire. They give false light. They make promises of water and promises of nutrients, but all they're doing is playing with people's emotions. How often have we seen this? Clouds without water. (laughs) I remember one time at the drug center in Peru, this charlatan came through and all the guys wanted to go see him. 
And finally, the leader of the drug center said, you know, I'm just going to let you guys go see him and see how worthless it is. I mean, he had a healing show and, and everything else. It was amazing. And one of our guys, oh, this was 30 years ago. One of our guys had a cast on up to his thigh, from his foot all the way up to half up his thigh. And uh, that evangelist guy saw him out in the crowd and convinced him to come up on stage. <laughs> And he got up on stage and he got so hopped up. That evangelist guy got him so hopped up on emotion. He told him to throw down those crutches and walk. And then he told him to jump. Then he told him to run. And I mean, everyone is applauding and clapping. And, and the guy is just saying, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed. The next day, they had to cut the cast off his leg because his leg was so swelled up. And he was in so much pain, he could hardly stand it. Lesson learned. But all those people went away from there that day, believing he got healed and that evangelist was some kind of man of God. Do you see? Clouds without water. But they don't even, they don't just do that with show. They also do that with their teachings. Make great promises. One of the problems I have um, Sometimes with these conferences, especially among young people, is they get so excited. You know, the right kind of music is played. Exciting music is played. Everybody's there. And they're like little toy soldiers. They get wound up. And they come home just full of zeal and, 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 and full of energy for God. But like a toy soldier, they just wind down. And you know what that does? That increases their hopelessness and their hopelessness eventually turns to bitterness. That there's no real way to grow. There's no real way to overcome spiritual apathy. These men play on emotions, but they're clouds without water and they're carried along by winds. Uh, in Ephesians, we have every wind of doctrine, don't we? And it's children that are carried away by every wind of doctrine. These men are spiritually dead, of course, and, and being that way, spiritually immature. They're children. They have no maturity. They know nothing. They're just carried around by the latest fad. But that can also happen among us. You know, when I, I remember a time when being reformed was uh, you were greatly in the minority. Greatly. And you were you were ostracized. And then all of a sudden, about 15 years ago, it became cool to be young, reformed and restless. And it was like a fad. Everybody had a T-shirt on everybody. But then all of a sudden it was went from there to what? Social justice. And it goes to another thing and another thing, just being carried from one thing to another. When we should only be carried by the word of God, by the gospel. And by a gospel ministry, they are autumn trees without fruit. They look beautiful, but there's nothing really that will feed you there. And then look at the language he uses doubly dead, uprooted. They're not just dead, they're doubly dead. And they're not dead with a possibility of revitalization. They've been pulled up from the roots. They're not sunk deep into the word of God, into Christ. Now, again, although this has no direct application to you as ministers of Christ, it does have an application. We need to sink our roots down if we are to grow up. You don't grow in the pulpit. You grow in the study. You've got to sink your roots deep in the word of God. If someone cuts your veins like they used to say of Bunyan, it should be the word of God that comes out. And brethren, let me share you some. I love the Puritans. I love reformers. I love some of our modern writers. But I want to tell you something. It's all fodder compared to the word of God. If all you're doing is getting your theology from the Puritans, you're not listening to the Puritans. If all you're doing is getting your theology from the reformers, you're not listening to the reformers. If you're getting all your sermons from Spurgeon, you're not a son of Spurgeon. Because all of them would chasten you with briars and they'd send you back to the word of God. And on your knees, 
in prayer. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. They can't hide their lusts. They can't hide them. Whether it's a new private jet or it's some affair with a woman, they can't hide their lusts. In the, in the outwardly, they may appear like something, but when you get close to them, you begin to see what's going on. And it's not just, it doesn't just trickle out. The lust is like a mad wave just spooming up, but just, you know, uh, bringing up more and more mire from underneath what's in the heart. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Outside of the light, outside of God's favorable presence, eternal darkness. And, and according to, to Paul in 1 Timothy, these men, they're just puppets. They're puppets driven by an even greater enemy. Even though we can say that men who are radically depraved can make themselves your enemy. They're not the real enemy behind the scenes. And that is what Paul is talking here about doctrines of demons. Now, here's something that I, I, I'm going to read to you that I want you to understand, especially as young ministers. And even today, I sometimes am shocked at how naive I am. These men do not play by the same rules as the godly minister. They combat sincerity with hypocrisy. They combat truth with error and logic with confusion. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. Isaiah 59, 4. I would think that by now I would cease to be amazed at how wicked men can be. But I am not. I would cease to be amazed how cleverly they can cloak their wickedness. But I am, I am still not. Be very, very careful, young men. Do not become cynical. Do not believe that all men are faithless. But know this. It's a dangerous world out there. It's a dangerous world. And what tests a man more than anything is success. I have seen men who appeared quite humble until they gained some authority in ministry or until they gained some sort of wealth or power. And then you say, oh, those things changed them. No, they didn't. Those things just revealed what they've always been. Be very, very careful. Another thing, do not ask God to give you position or power. Because it could be your downfall. Ask God to make you holy. And let him decide what he wants to do with you. I have found that most men that I have talked to who are in the limelight do not want to be in the limelight. If you desire to be there. Then you don't need to be there. You say, well, I want my ministry to be successful and impact the world. And I say to you, you're a fool. <laughs> you're a fool. And what do I mean? I know people serving in the jungles. And no one will ever know their name. And they'll be so close to the throne of God in heaven, I'll never see them. I have a friend that just passed away and almost no one knows his name. He's in his 90s. He went to Peru when he was in his 20s, young 20s, 21, 22. He forgot more about God than I've ever known. He's been used of God in mountains and jungles and on the coast. Do you really think that fame is a measure of how much a man is used of God? My friend Mike Morrow who's one of the greatest theologians I've ever known. Very few people know his name. He used to say this. Why would God plant his most beautiful rose in a forest where no man or no angel would ever walk? How would God get glory from that rose, that flower? 
And he would laugh and say, God would get glory from it because God himself would see it every day. And that's all that matters. Yes, you should desire to be mightily used of God, but do not confuse that with conference speaking or having some silly online presence. Don't do it. Man, I got people right now that I'm thinking about. One young lady has gone into one of the most dangerous places in the world to share the gospel because most men are too afraid to go there. You'll never know her name and she'll probably die a martyr. Oh my brothers, don't, don't fall into this trap. You haven't arrived because you speak at a conference. You haven't arrived until you go home. Then you've arrived. Let's go on. So, one of the great weaknesses of the young minister is that he is naive. It is hard for him to believe that anyone could be as dishonest or as irrational as the false prophets are. Let's go on now. Verses 3. Through five, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now, what is the main thing that we pull away from this? They, they forbid marriage, advocate abstaining from foods. I mean, really? Think, just think about that for a moment. I mean, I want you to think about that. In the first two verses of this text, it's as though he's getting ready to present to us the Antichrist. In the last days, apostasy, doctrines of demons. I mean, we would expect that verse three would be talking about, you know, getting the seal of the Antichrist or something. And here he is talking about food and marriage. I mean, it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Here's what you need to see. Notice that the gospel is not mentioned in their preaching. These false teachers will either preach to you a legalism and a self-righteousness and a self-justification or they'll preach to you an antinomianism that has no bounds, but they won't preach Christ. Here's what I want you to see. If you make anything in your preaching and your church, if you give anything preeminence over Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead, you're an apostate. Or at least you're acting like one at that moment. You've got to understand the Apostle Paul is a man who is utterly saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I only want to know one thing about you. Christ, Christ crucified. Do you see that young man? Now, the Bible, as I've already said, is full of laws and principles and great declarations and maxims of wisdom and you need to teach the full counsel of God to God's people but the center of everything is the gospel they need to know who Christ is what what they were what Christ has done and who they are now in Christ that's what they need they need to know it backwards and forwards from one side to the other that's what they need so out of you young men, we want to hear gospel preaching, gospel preaching. You say, well, what do I do after that? Do you honestly think you could exhaust the gospel? Do you honestly think that you've preached the whole thing? A friend of mine told me one time he was sitting behind two elderly women at the church. And he goes, a minister got up and said, today I'm going to be preaching on faith. <laughs> and the two women looked at each other and goes, why is he doing that? We know all about faith. <laughs> really? You do, huh? 
I've had people tell me, why are you preaching the gospel? We already know that. And I tell them, you will be in eternity in heaven and you will still not have sounded the depths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just one glory after another. Now, again, brothers, listen to me. I want you to teach the full counsel of God. You ought to be able to say with David, I love your law. You ought to be a scribe who's able to pull the old and the new. But nothing takes the place of the gospel. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And oh, how as I get older, guys. Oh, how I want people to understand who they are in Jesus. The greatest pain in my heart is to see believers walking condemned and downcast over their failures and not looking unto Jesus. I want them to see that his work on their behalf is perfect, perfect, perfect. I want them so that when they sin, I want them to know that the love of God toward them is immutable because the effects of the cross are immutable. I want them even when they sin. I want, do I want to, should there be weeping if we sin? Absolutely. But here's the thing. I don't want God's people running away from him and weeping in a dark corner. I want God's people to run to him and weep in his arms. His arms of love. We want them to know that perfect work is indeed a perfect work and they are genuinely loved by God and they have a confidence in that work that leads to joy and that joy will drive them to greater piety. Far more than a whip. Far more than a whip. Now, I want to give a warning here to um, to homeschoolers. <laughs> now, I homeschool. I still do. I'm 61. I have a six-year-old. We homeschool. And uh, I, I believe that almost today you're driven to it, uh, unless you have a wonderful biblical Christian school. But brothers, um, there should be an emphasis to children on character. There should be. There should be an emphasis on developing their talents of manners maketh the man. There's nothing wrong with that. But your children need the gospel. And the priority in your home shouldn't be. We're going to be refined people of the Victorian era who have studied the trivium and the quadrivium. No, we want to gospelize our children. We want to gospelize our wives. We want to gospelize ourselves. That's a word, the only word I can find that fits what we should be doing. All, all teaching has one great purpose, to explain the gospel or teach its application. So we're gonna be gospel men now. Let's 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 go on now to six. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Now, first of all, he says in pointing out these things, the godly minister must point out the centrality of Christ and the gospel. He must also warn against deviating from the simplicity of the gospel. When he said these things, I believe he's pointing back to what he said, that it's all about the gospel. Do not deviate from the gospel. Do not deviate from the gospel. Church life is important, but church life isn't the gospel. Marriage is important, but marriage isn't the gospel. Raising godly children is wonderful, but it's not the gospel. Even teaching the law is not the gospel. It is a precursor. It will lead people to the gospel and show people the splendid and essential nature of the gospel. It'll also teach people something about the character of God and how they should live. But it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Now, the phrase pointing out is translated from a present tense Greek verb indicating continuous action. And I think you can see why. It's like we all have a left foot that goes sideways, don't we? 
And what do we need to do? What do I have to do? Even after all these years, what do I have to do? Do you realize 40 years, how many times I've failed? Do you have any idea? And the memory of that? That I have not escaped? Sin or the possibility of error? Do you realize how constantly I have to preach to myself the gospel of Jesus Christ? Man, most of the people in your church, though, and I'm talking about true converted people, are beaten down. Are beaten down. I've even realized now if I get up and preach, you know, sometimes when we preach, it's a genuine work of God and you see great zeal. I mean, you feel like you could rip a car door off a car. <laughs> but you have to be careful because the, the person in the pew is looking at you and saying, I could never be like that. Such passion, such devotion. And what they have to hear from our own mouths is that we're not either. That even though we hope to be sincere men, we're still weak men and we struggle with the same things they struggle with. And they were constantly looking to Jesus as the healing balm, constantly looking at Jesus to quiet us. Oh, brethren, you need to allow the congregation. They need to see that you're a sincere man and a holy man, but they need to see that you're one of them. And you struggle. And you have a need of constantly looking to the finished work on Calvary, pointing out these things constantly. Now, here's one of the wonderful things about Paul. Paul not only said things, he lived them. And you can really see this in Colossians 2. And I want you to turn there for a moment. Verses 6 through 10. Timothy could learn from Paul's own example of his teaching. In Colossians, Paul says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Don't deviate. You see what's going on? You've received the apostolic message about who Christ is and what he's done. Walk in it. Walk in him. Don't deviate from that message. And I can assure you that apostolic message had the cross at its center. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Now, what happens? Those false teachers come in and they cut away at this. Christ is not enough. Christ is not enough. Christ is not enough. Downplaying, downplaying the cross constantly, constantly. And when they do that, they uproot the believer. They make him unestablished in his faith. And they, his gratitude just completely is destroyed. When Jesus is all you have, he's going to be the only focus of your gratitude. Or the reason for it. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Anything, as we see here in First Timothy, anything that does not have Christ at its center, Christ as its beginning and end, anything that gives any priority above Christ, anything that is put beside Christ or even near him is going to destroy you and it's going to destroy the church. It's going to kill its gratitude, its worship and its joy. Don't allow it to happen. For in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is head over all rule and authority. You need brothers. Christ is glorious and there's no end to his glory. And there's no end to the, the glorious nature of his work. Preach it. You'll not run out of things to say. You'll not run out of things to say. Now, he says, pointing out these things, pointing out these things. And in verse six, he said, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, the word servant here is diakonos. 
It doesn't mean that Timothy was a, a deacon. But it does mean this, that the preacher is a servant. Now, before you get carried away, you're a servant. But how have you been called to serve? You know, as I've studied church life now over many, many years, I think if I were to start a church tomorrow, people always talk about, you know, when you start a church, you want to, if you can, you know, go out, have a guy who pastors. It'd be great to have a full-time evangelist working with you. I agree. It'd be great to have a, a music person working with you. I agree. Not for entertainment, but because worship is the end of all things. <laughs> we preach so that men might worship. I'm becoming more and more convinced of the importance of worship but it must not be based upon the world but there was another man I would take with me if I could it'd be a full-time deacon deacons have become the brunt of jokes many deacons are not qualified to be deacons because they haven't been instructed others aren't qualified because they're just not qualified one of the reasons why preachers are running around and not doing the service they're called to do is because not enough emphasis is being placed on the importance of the deacon. As a matter of fact, most pastors spend most of their time doing deacon stuff. Your ministry should be a ministry of the word, brethren. When you go into a deacon's meeting, it isn't because you're the best accountant, usually Preachers are pretty bad at administration. You're there to exposit scripture with every question that comes up. Exposit scripture. Counseling is just expository preaching to a few people. Evangelism, exposition of scripture. Again, go to Philip in the Ethiopian. You'll see he expounded those texts. As a minister of Christ, you should be studying the Bible, praying and preaching, and you should exalt. If you're a pastor, you should exalt the position of deacon and you should start training a man to be a deacon. A man who's administrator, a man who has a heart of compassion and can take care of widows and orphans. I also recommend, although some of my brethren would disagree with me, I recommend that you would have a, a full time evangelist. Not someone who sits in an office all day moping because the church won't do evangelism. No, someone who just goes out and does it every day. Coffee shops, parks. Evangelism. Well. He says the word servant, of course, is from the Greek word diakonos. He's not saying that Timothy was a deacon. But he was saying that Timothy was a servant and we're to be servants also. I've written here, the prophet wears a towel, carries a basin and has bloody knees. How's that? I had a guy one time in my church, I was washing dishes after the uh, fellowship. And I said, hey, give me a hand over here with these dishes. And he said, I have the gift of leadership, not the gift of service. And I said, well, if you don't have the gift of service, you'll never be a leader in this church. The prophet wears a towel, carries a basin, and has bloody knees. Pastors must be careful not to confine their service to the church, to the pulpit of alone, but must also do practical works of service. But never, never cutting out from under them their primary job, and that is to expound Scripture in the power of the Holy Spirit. The truth of Acts 6 the truth that we find in Acts 6 was never intended to teach us that we should never wait on tables, only that we should never neglect the word of God in prayer. Let's go on. Verse 6, the source of the minister's strength. This is so important. He is constantly nourished. Look what it says. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished. The word constantly is not there, but it is communicated in the tense of the verb, nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. 
Now the word nourish, as I said, constantly is not there, but the word is in a present tense and implies a continuous action. Constantly feeding. I believe that there are so many natural things in this world that are designed the way they're designed in order to have a spiritual application. Brethren, if you would never say something like this. Tomorrow, I'm going to eat for 24 hours because the entire month, the next 30 days, it's going to be so busy that I can't eat. First of all, you would get sick. Second of all, if you were able to eat for 24 hours, you'd still be hungry the next day. That's not the way it works. You must be constantly nourished. And then there are a lot of men that they don't study after they graduate from seminary. Seminary was their study time. Listen to me. Seminary, sometimes seminaries get a bad rap because people are expecting them to do something they can't do. I'm talking about the good ones. You see, a seminary cannot prepare you for the ministry. A seminary, a good one, gives you all the tools that you need so that you can spend the rest of your life preparing. So that you can spend the rest of your life growing. Hermeneutics. Being able to work with the languages also. Systematic theology and ethics so you can learn to think in a non-contradictory manner. Church history, so that you don't end up repeating the same mistake over and over and over again. He says, nourished, nourished. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God to feed upon God's word. And just so you know, you know, people say when the devil tempts you, attack him by quoting scripture. That's not what's going on in the Mount of Temptation. Jesus isn't beating the devil by quoting scripture. He's beating the devil by obeying the scripture that he's quoting. Don't leave that part out. But he says, you shall not live on. Why were they led 40 years through the desert? Why? To learn that man shall not live by bread alone, but by trusting in what God has said, by being obedient to what God has said, by submitting to God's lordship, by submitting to his law. A man who ministers according to his gifts and in the power of the Holy Spirit will be drained of strength. Make no mistake about it. My wife gets so mad at me because after I preach, um, you know, anywhere. I may stay around for another two hours talking to people. I saw that out of Leonard Ravenhill when I was a young man. And I said, if I ever get to preach, I'm going to do like Leonard Ravenhill. That old man, after he would preach, would stand around for an hour, two hours talking to anyone. But I always dragged myself back to the hotel room just half dead. And my wife would tell me, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. It will drain you. In Mark 530, it says immediately Jesus perceiving in himself that the power proceed, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? In older translations, virtue went out from him. Strength went out from him. Preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit will have to kill a man. Counseling. In the power of the Holy Spirit will half kill a man, drain him dry. It's just like when they say that, you know, we hear these stories about a car turns over, a baby's trapped inside and a mom's adrenaline starts running and she rips a door completely off the car and saves the baby. And the next day she can't even hardly move her arms. That adrenaline is running through her. I believe the same thing happens when you're preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. When you're ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be wore out. A night of prayer can literally drain you to the point where you can't even hardly talk anymore. And so if you're not constantly feeding yourself on the word of God, you are going to run down. Now, he says, 
in verse six and pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith. He's not talking about words that produce faith, but the words that form the basis or foundation, the doctrine of Christianity. Hebert, who's one of my favorites, uh, if you want to get somebody who's really, really good at um, a commentary writer, it's D. Edmund Hebert. Get get everything he's he's done. Just get it. He writes the statements that embody what is believed, the excellent doctrinal formations of the Christian faith in which Timothy had been instructed. Doctrine, doctrine feeds us. I've written here the need for doctrine cannot be overemphasized. True doctrine never leads to dullness of heart or coldness. Never. The negative press regarding doctrine is ludicrous at best and blasphemous at worst. The more I learn about the doctrines of Christ or the doctrine of God, the more I am driven, the more my affections are drawn out of me for God, for Christ, and then they drive me on, they drive me forward. Now, he says here in verse in verse six, something that is very important that we shouldn't overlook. He says the sound doctrine which you have been following. Obedience. To the apostolic teaching had already been ingrained in the life of Timothy. You need to see that. He had taught himself. To be obedient. You know, obedience gives way to greater obedience and disobedience gives way to greater disobedience. You're either spiraling. We, we used to say like in, in weightlifting or any kind of sport, you're either spiraling upward or you're spiraling downward. There's no such thing as maintenance. There's no such thing. You're either going up or going down. Now, whether that's true or not in the physical realm, it is true in Christianity. The more you obey, the stronger you become in obedience. And the more you give way to disobedience, the more you train yourself to do that. Keep finding more and more excuses for not pressing on. But here's something else I want you to see. He says the sound doctrine which you have been following. It's not enough to teach sound doctrine to other people and to exhort other people to obey the sound doctrine. You yourself are to obey the sound doctrine that you're teaching and your life is to be an example of it. And we see that in Matthew 28, 20. Jesus says teaching them to observe. He doesn't say teaching them to observe all I commanded them. As though he jumped over the preacher. He said teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Very, very important. Now. If you'll notice here, we have a good servant and we have good doctrine. In both cases, the adjective good are, is translated from the Greek word kalos, which may also be translated healthy, useful, commendable. Good, virtuous, spiritually healthy, spiritually beneficial. Spiritually commendable. A good servant of Jesus Christ is the result of good doctrine. At least that's where it starts. Now I said and I stand by it. Good doctrine isn't everything. But it is essential. It's an essential part. We must have good doctrine. We, but that good doctrine is revealed to us as we study the scriptures. And as the power of the Holy Spirit illuminates the scriptures. But we also need the power of the Holy Spirit to live the scriptures and bear fruit according to the word. A good servant of Christ Jesus is the result of good doctrine. We should not doubt that the classics have some value in the training of the minister, but they are chaff in comparison to the word of God. We should not doubt that the classics. And the examples of godly men and women are of great benefit. We should not doubt that. 
I lament that I haven't studied the lives of God's servants more. Um, I think of, uh, whenever I think about a worthy project has been uh, Steve Lawson's uh, little books on, on different uh, men of the faith. It's good to read those, very good. Much of the practice at HeartCry is based upon the autobiography of George Mueller. But nothing replaces the word of God. Uh, recently, I've, I've had on my bed, in my bed, on my bedstand, uh, Joel Beakey's commentary on the book of Revelation. It is like food for my soul. But that does not replace scripture. Looking unto Jesus by Isaac Ambrose. Oh, magnificent, magnificent. Flavel, the meditorial glories of Christ. Wonderful, wonderful. None of it replaces scripture. None of it can touch scripture. Scripture is supernatural. Scripture was woven. It's a tapestry woven by God. It has power. So we need to devote ourselves to scripture. Now, in our next study, we will study discipline for the purpose of godliness. Um, I would never tell anyone to diminish the time that they spend in the study of good doctrine, because that is foundation. But I would admonish us to increase our concern for the practice of that good doctrine. Genuine piety. One of the things I so appreciate about Puritan seminary is if you look at their syllabi, uh, if you look at the purpose, you know, their core values, everything. It's always doctrine, piety, doctrine, piety, the practice of piety. It's not just doctrine. Remember, I always say this, it's going to sound he's repeating it again. Christianity is not less than sound doctrine, but it is more. It is more. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. And I pray, dear God, that you would use it in the lives of these men and whoever watched this, Lord. Please help them, strengthen them. Cause them to be servants of your people, especially the least of your people. Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.